Hello and welcome to the Customer Insight Leader Podcast. Data, analytics, big data, data science, machine learning, customer insight, behavioral science, blockchain, data ops, data engineering, agile working, phew, too many terms, too many things to think about. Do you as a leader need somewhere to turn, to hear what other leaders are doing, to hear what really makes a difference in your business? Welcome. The Customer Insight Leader Podcast is here for you. Each episode, we'll be interviewing a different leader in the fields of customer insight, data, and analytics to hear what they really do, what really makes a difference. So settle down, get that cup of coffee, and enjoy the Customer Insight Leader Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Customer Insight Leader Podcast, a place to hear from today's leaders in the fields of customer insight, data, and analytics. I'm your host, Paul Lachlan, and with me today is Graham McDonald. Graham is the Chief Data Officer for the Urban Institute, a US nonprofit dedicated to elevating the debate on social and economic policy. Regular listeners may actually recall that I interviewed a colleague of Graham's, John Schwabish, back in episode 15, and I don't normally have more than one guest in the same organisation on this show, but John's so focused on the world of data visualisation and his digital presence serving that community, that when I heard about Graham, heard about his background in data science as well as research, and a number of the lessons he's learned during his career, I was just persuaded, got to have him on the show. So, welcome Graham. Thank you, Paul. Those are some very kind words. I'm glad to be here. I'm very happy to have you as a guest too. I'm sure it's going to be a helpful conversation. You also uh, add to our list of podcast guests from across the pond, as, as we put it here in the UK. So could you let our listeners know where you're joining us from today, Gwen? Sure. I'm live here from Northern Virginia in the Washington, D.C. Uh, metro area, where we are in full-on uh, cicada mode. The big bugs on their 17-year return have uh, taken over. Oh, actually, oh, I'm very, very happy to be in the UK. In Wales, it is actually sunny today as well. So it's one of those days of the year, which are, which are rarer. Definitely better than having your little critters. So all the best with that. Uh, I, I normally start on these podcasts, Graham, by asking my guests to tell us about their career story, their backstory, if you like, because it helps provide a bit of a framework uh, for people to understand where you're coming from. So could you tell us a bit about your background and how you've developed during your career, including at the Urban Institute? Sure, thanks, Paul. And um, basically I'll start when I first came to the Urban Institute as a research assistant um, Mm. over 10 years ago, and I was focused on housing and metropolitan research and basically doing data analyses that helped uh, federal government agencies here in the U.S., private foundations, and others answer research questions about how to improve what at the time was, as you recall, a fairly horrible housing market. And it was on the mm. eve of the mm. Great Recession. And we were basically doing analyses on you know, where were the hardest impacted areas, where are the areas that needed the most assistance, how are programs like for um, foreclosure forbearance and mm. you know, financial assistance, and you know, underwater mortgages and what was going on with subprimes and all of these sorts of really fascinating questions at the time. Sure. And how were they, you know, how could we help and how could we improve that sort of work? And you know, basically that, um, that set of work was really fascinating to me. And I came about 
you know, at that time when we were very much a research organization producing PDFs, right? And that was the way we did our work. And it struck me at the time that, you know, there was all of this new, uh, you know, reporting going on in newspapers and in other, you know, in blogs and on the, on the internet that was more focused on sort of data visualization and mm. on, you know, more accessible ways of reporting and that we had so much to offer, but yeah. it was so dense, right? And, you know, mm. the, the, at the time, the World Bank had come out with a report saying, we, you know, 80% of our reports are never read or are read by less than five people. And, you know, I think a lot of organizations around that time with, with this sort of PDF release um, way of working were in that same boat. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that while I was doing that research got me really excited was doing, you know, playing around with some of this data visualization. And I was able to, with a colleague, sort of convince folks that we should start playing around with some of these new data viz technologies. Mm-hmm. And in the process, sort of worked my way into being one of Urban's first sort of data viz developers, I'll call it. I wouldn't say that now because my JavaScript skills were laughable at the time now that I know what true <laughs> web programming is. But we basically created these sort of simple interactive maps and charts and ways of visualizing your metro area and looking at the housing market and how it was changing. And that were, you know, orders of magnitude more attention than our traditional PDF release format. And that made a lot of waves at Urban and outside of Urban because of that excitement for seeing that information and being able to consume it in a much easier way, both in traditional forms and on social media. And so, you know, um, I played around with that with some, you know, a little bit of web scraping here and there, trying to get some new, these da- new data sources while I was at Urban and then went off to grad school to sort of learn more about those skills. And then I okay. came back to Urban um, after a couple of years of getting my master's in public policy. And I basically said, like, we should have this thing called a data science team. Data viz is great. You all have built up this data viz team while I'm out at policy school. That's fantastic and much better than I ever was at JavaScript. And that's sort of becoming a, a core capacity at Urban and now is more than a core capacity. It's just amazing what, what we've been able to do under the leadership of others here at Urban, like uh, Ben Chartoff, our leader of um, data visualization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I came back and said, data science is the next thing. These new techniques for web scraping, for using big data, for you know, automating processes, for using the cloud to mm. um, better leverage some of these new tools for research. This is the thing that we need to do next. That's the sort of the exciting thing like DataViz was five years before. Okay. And you know, there was uh, you know, really a real excitement for that at, at Urban. And you know, over the last five years, I've really worked to build up what I now call the data science and data engineering teams here at Urban, where we, you know, basically try to, as I say, in sort of the corporate pitchy words I would use are democratize data and and data analytics expertise. Mm -hmm. So like leveraging our really smart urban research experts, uh, their decades long, you know, experience with uh, data and analytics for policy work and try to basically embed that expertise into our data, our open data, our research work, and some of the, what we call policy decision tools we produce. So, mm-hmm. you know, tools that allow people to, you know, change things about policies and understand what those consequences of those will be for different income groups or for different places in the country and things like that. And, you know, I think 
allowing more and more people to sort of access our expertise, access our data expertise, access our analytics expertise, because our goal as an organization, as you said at the beginning, is to elevate the debate, right? And if we're only working with five people and we can't work with anyone else, then only those five people can elevate the debate uh, as a simple example. Yeah. And we want more people to be able to do that. We want to get those that, that data and those insights of those policy experts to more folks. And I see that as sort of the role of technology. And that's the current work I'm, I'm, I'm doing now is to sort of make sure that we embed more of that expertise into more and more of the government processes, mm -hmm. uh, especially mm -hmm. here in the US. That, make, that makes good sense. Th thank you for sharing that, Graham. I, I'm struck how much you've um, talked about that kind of engaging other people. Um, I, <laughs> thank you for the caveat that it's your pitch language, but the democratization of, of, of data, as you said it, and you kind of touched on a, a lot of that I hear from people who try and, try and advance that. I guess in my work with other leaders, you sometimes hear the what I might describe as the shadow side of democratization of data is you're putting out tools and data to people who don't really understand what they're doing. And there's a danger that without your help, they they make uninformed decisions, they misuse the data, et cetera. Is that something you're running into and tackling with the work that you describe? Yeah, I think there is always a fine line when you walk that I love the I love the idea. I haven't heard it before of of the the shadow side of it. Uh, I yes, it absolutely is. It's and it's not a new conversation for folks in the research world. I'll point out. So very much so, you know, there are statisticians here or criminal justice experts or others who say, well, nobody except statisticians should do statistics. Nobody other than criminal justice experts should do criminal justice work, right? Mm. But I think the reality is that to do really good policy work, we have to work together to make these things happen. And we have to take the risks to work together to make these things happen. We have to, as statisticians, empower people to use statistics well. We have to, as criminal justice experts, empower others to better understand the criminal justice system, right? And I think the challenge is in getting that balance right. It's not in saying, let's not do one or not do the other, right? Like, mm -hmm. let's, let's just only have 10 people who are able to do statistics in the world because they're the smartest statisticians, right? <laughs> sure, then we'll never sure. get it done. And we all recognize that's not, that shouldn't be the case. On the other hand, we shouldn't, we shouldn't say, well, everyone, here's, a, here's an AI tool. You figure out what the policy is <laughs> that we should do and let's yeah. figure out what that, how that works. And you know, no one has the expertise. So you know, I think we're trying to strike that balance of let's provide the tools with the right context behind them mm -hmm. so that we mm -hmm. can mitigate those risks as much as possible. And I think if you don't go through that process, I, I agree with you. I think you run into that risk of democratizing, but seeing many more risks than you do benefits. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that we do when we're building these sort of decision assist tools um, or you know, democratizing the data is you know, we always allow for contacts. We post our, mm -hmm. uh, our code and data publicly so, we can, so people right. can audit what we do. We mm -hmm. also put into context, we work with users and test them and say, you know, when you're working through this tool, right? Here is a tool tip or here is a piece of a sentence saying, you know, this is one part of the process. The next part is to talk with their community and better understand whether these trends you're seeing are indeed what they are experiencing on the ground or things like that. And so, you know, I would think there are ways to mitigate that, but I agree. I think if we don't always think about that, then we're probably not thinking about it enough and we're running into too many of those risks. Yeah. Thank you, Greg. That, 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 that makes good sense. The other thing I noticed when you, you shared your career story was you, you actually passed over it very modestly, very quickly, your, your, your master's in, in public policy. And um, I guess I was, I was kind of surprised at that point where 
I might with a number of guests have got that after they'd had this enthusiasm for the potential of data science, they'd say, and I came back with a master's in data science, but, but you'd gone and done further study to really have domain expertise, to really understand the area that you're serving with your, with your data analytics skills. Not always what data leaders do. Did you find real value in going deeper into that uh, public policy understanding? Yeah, that's a great question, Paul. I would say, so first, the first caveat there is I took a bunch of um, information and computer science classes at policy school. Uh, okay. and it was one of my decisions. One of my decision making criteria was uh, that I could be go to a school that would enable me to jump back and forth between those worlds. Mm -hmm. And Berkeley, um, unlike a lot of other schools, has one of those open enrollment policies where it actually is. And I tested this out before I went to grad school, and I would recommend other folks who are going to grad school do the same thing Good. to actually ask some of the professors and students how easy it is to register for courses outside of their program of experience. Because there are some schools that are very restricted and rigid and others that are much more open. And uh, I, I consciously made that decision and took a few courses in um, computer science. But I also took a bunch in policy. Uh, and, and that was my main focus, as you, as you said. And I think it's important to note that I feel really strongly that the right technical solutions are going to come from the people with the policy background and trained in the technology. Um, and maybe this is just my point of view, but I feel really strongly that technology skills and data skills are are teachable. And the harder thing is to have that deep years long immersion in a policy area or in 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 understanding the policy processes that it'll allow you to see the solutions so clearly between yeah. those two worlds. And it's not that the technical part isn't important. It's just that from my point of view, I had seen that, it was often much easier to come up with the solution knowing a little bit about the technology and a lot about the policy than the other way around because the policy issues involve people. And as we know, people are really, really complex. <laughs> and it's not that technology isn't complex, but technology is an ordered complexity. Whereas often we are, uh, um, people are a bit unscrutable sometimes and, uh, and difficult to understand and have preferences that uh, economists scratch their heads over very, uh, very often. So, you know, I've, I've I just I lean toward that balance of trying to understand that policy complexity and then layering on some of the more ordered uh, technical complexity. And as long as somebody has that skill to learn, I think that that's an important that's the most important trait for me in terms of finding these valuable policy solutions with technology. A good point. Well made. And I'm with you, Graham. I think the the, the importance of what I still think of as domain expertise is is underappreciated in business as well, but it's hugely powerful to the analytical thinking and, and the value people in your kind of role can add. So well said. I, I'm also struck by your references, you kind of alluded to it, that, that twice you you pitched a capability build, if you like, in your organisation. You, you First you persuaded Urban Institute, this data viz stuff is brilliant, we should do more of this, and then, then later sold them on data science as well. Many data leaders face the challenge of pitching for investment in, in those kind of capabilities to their executives or their boards. I wonder whether you feel you've got any tips to share, Graham. What, why did you succeed? What worked? Oh, God, there are so many other people in this space that I owe a debt to that I, uh, <laughs> I asked the same question of. <laughs> so I think it's an excellent question, and I'll try to repeat their advice very well, especially the ones that <laughs> okay. were, 
that worked for me anyway. Uh, if it didn't work, I won't repeat it here. Um, but there, you know, I think one thing to note is that very often there's a lot of support already existing and there's was it urban around both of these areas that I, I mentioned, data visualization and data science. It wasn't like I came in and was saying, oh, there's this new thing called data visit no one here has heard of. Yeah, <laughs> or oh, there's a new okay. thing called data science that no one here has heard of. And, and, and by the way, you should use it. I think what I did more effectively than others was to make the case, as you said, to why should this be a valuable thing? Why is this something that's, that's really something that is worth investing in mm. um, rather than something that all, you know, probably more often than not, it was the less experienced, more junior staff that were, that were thinking, oh, this is so obvious. This is the way the world works. This is the way I've known the world works. We should be doing more of this. Why are you still doing PDF sort of thing, yeah, you know? Yeah. Or why are, why are we not using some of these new data science techniques, but also like connecting that to the people who are in charge and could actually make those decisions and enabling them to do that work. And I think a lot of that was, you know, the advice I got and the advice that worked really well for me was starting with the small, really small experiments, experiments for which you didn't need um, approval or for which you only mm. needed mm. very small discretionary approval that didn't go too far up the chain is very important, right? Sure. And then showing that value in that small experiment to the immediate folks, to the uh, the high up people and to the people that are junior that are really the champions of that work. And so, you know, when I thought, when I think about what's effective about making that pitch, there are sort of three different audiences that I was shooting for. For one, there's like the top level people of the organization, right? And they have a certain set of goals. And really like throughout these three, I just want to emphasize, it's really simple to, when you, once you understand this principle, like understand the goals of the, each of the people in the organization that you're working with and just align with them. Make sure that whatever you're doing and whatever you're pitching aligns with them. Obviously start small, start with things that are discretionary approval or that you can do now and apologize for later <laughs> if you don't have the approval, right? Yeah. And then once you've shown the value, it sort of says, they, 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 they might say, oh, that was a good mistake we made, <laughs> right? Um, but once you align with those top people of the organization, I think it's yeah, that's a pretty straightforward maxim to follow. Mm. It's just hard to do, right? Just mm. like exer mm. just exercise every day and eat healthy is easy to say, but hard to do. Yeah, so, sure. you know, at the top level, right? That's in, for us at Urban, that was, we want to make impact, right? And we want to elevate the debate. That's our motto. And we want to also show funders that we are doing that because we need to stay alive as an organization financially. <laughs> so we need to make sure, sure that the government sure. and foundations are. So that's our top line alignment that I needed to make at the top of the organization. Midway through the organization are the researchers who are the decision makers and the fundraisers. Mm -hmm. And they want, you know, they want their work to have an impact. They want to be widely read. They want to, it's reputational. They want to be seen as leaders in the field, mm -hmm. right? And they also want to have some of that impact. Um, and so, you know, I think among that, you, you sort of have to align with those, with those folks and make sure that like you're showing them that their work is widely read, that, that people are referring to them and that they are seen as leaders in the field, right? And then for the junior staff or the less experienced folks, they want that learning opportunity. They want to see they're making a difference in the world. That's why they joined uh, a social impact organization rather than you know an Amazon or a Microsoft or something like that, right? Uh, and then they also want to look great for their bosses, right? They want, they want to look good. So if you can make them look good and you can give them the place where they're bolstering their resume and, and feel like they're making a difference, you know, that's fairly valuable. So at each step of the phase, right, we're, we're saying, you know, I'm pitching it differently, right? I'm pitching about how we're going to do fundraising and, and gathering a story about how we made 
impact based on the data viz, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for that, we want to make sure or, you know, or for the data science. So what, what do we do? We basically go out to the communities that we think we're going to be impacting with this data decision assist tool, for, for example, and say, yep. you know, how would you use this if we were to build it? And they would tell us and then we would adjust the tool. So we make sure we hit that criteria and they're our champions all the way. And they say, hey, great job. <laughs> you know, yeah. at the end of the day, we're using this to do X. And then I can bring that to our board. I can bring that to our CEO and say, hey, look, this one organization used it to do X. And it's not number of reads that matter. It's not number of clicks in that case. It's just that one story that really matters to them. And then, you know, we get in front of the board and tell that story and everyone's really happy. <laughs> and they're like, what, what a great investment we made in data science, right? It doesn't have anything to do with uh, any of our great big data metrics. <laughs> and then, you know, the, the researcher might be a little different. It's, you know, um, did you get published in a top journal? Uh, what are the number of reads and clicks and what's, you know, how many people look, your PDF was 10, uh, had 10 readers and look, this interactive as 20,000. Yeah. Uh, isn't that really interesting that you're making this impact? And then, you know, uh, the kudos that the junior staff gets from their boss and, you know, the learning opportunity that they see and, and the fact that they could see that impact made, they're really motivated by all of that. And so you get this great, you know, as long as I think you're focused on all of them, it takes a lot of work to get to each of those stages. But yeah, yeah. that would be my tip would be to sort of make sure that you focus on that and start small. Good, good tip, Graham. And I think wise, as many people will, will recall when we think about doing these things properly, to, um, to, to start small, to, to align well with what, what your audience needs and, and to really understand the, those, those needs and priorities. I think what was wise, and I don't always hear from leaders, is, is recognizing that it's not one audience. I think sometimes when, when leaders are time poor, there's there's good thinking about starting small and aligning, but you try and think of all your stakeholders as one bunch and just align with the business. And your identification of those three groups sounds, I can see where you had success. It sounds sensible, Gwen. Yeah, so I would I would say I hear, and I will, I will be really quick. I, the, the biggest error I hear is exactly what you just said, which is, people say, what is your audience and who are you trying to influence? And they say, oh, policymakers and leaders and, you know, researchers and everyone. And you're like, that's not a really good identification of audience. You need to be much more specific and probably focus on one because each product is probably going to be very tailored to that needs of the audience. You won't find that one thing works for everyone. So, Yes, nice way of putting it. Thank you, Graham. Well worth sharing. You also mentioned, as you talked about your, your career story, this, this whole idea of kind of Im embedding with the different policy area researchers you've got, almost automating their expertise. And I I was reminded, it's one of the things I must admit, I, I felt I never really conquered in, in my own career was the ongoing challenge of managing internal knowledge, um, automating existing human expertise. I wonder what, what's worked for you in that space. But I'm just struck actually, before I ask you that, how much this is becoming an emerging theme in our conversation. It's all very much about the how to get targeted technology working well with the messy world of how multidimensional people are, but <laughs> just emerge, it's nice. Um, so, so what about this challenge, that the knowledge management, the embedding with the way that those policy area researchers work, how, how have you seen success there? Yeah, I, that's, a, that's a great question. And I'll also I'll answer with a messy answer too, which is, okay. you know, we start with, I think what we all think of when we think of technology change, or not we all, but I'll say, people I've encountered think of is it's a zero or a hundred proposition, right? Like mm -hmm. we implement technology and everyone adopts it. But in reality, what we know is that there is a curve and it's not, not the first one to say it and it won't be the last where there's early adopters and there's late adopters. And yep. 
I don't. I wish the curve had never adopters on it because that's definitely a big part of the curve yeah, <laughs> as well. Yeah, yeah, um, but it doesn't seem to have enough room on there for never adopters. But you know, there. <laughs> but there are early and late ones that we know from the curve, and then there's the middles. And I, I, I feel that's very true. And I, when you say success, I think, you know, in some parts we're in the late adopter part of the curve. You know, in in many respects, I think in for data viz, you know, ten years later, we're we're getting toward the late adopter edge of the curve where it's just part of the way we do work as opposed to we only do PDFs. We do blogs, we do data viz, we do podcasts, you know, there's many more avenues for dissemination. Um, but I think, you know, in the, in, in how we implement other types of technology, like how we do certain types of data science or data engineering, we may be only 20 or 40% of the way through that curve. Okay. And so, you know, when I say I've had success, I think it's important to note that like success can be going from zero to 20 or zero to 40. <laughs> That's a big yeah, piece of yeah, success. And we yeah. often, uh, you know, I think in the last five years going from, you know, in some technologies, we've gone from zero to 60 and others, we've gone from zero to 10 or zero to 20. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I think, and I think that, that, that sort of moves into where I would say my advice is in this stage and what I've learned mm -hmm. from others is that, um, you know, automating expertise and um, making progress in that space is one step in a process. Right. And it's a process of moving toward more and more people and understanding each of those individuals, as we just talked about, um, and iterating and building quickly and finding that solution that works well for each of them. And once you get that value, you get that word of mouth, you measure, you know, we do things like measure how much, you know, it's a very standard industry thing, how many, how, how uh, likely are people to recommend you to others in your organization, <laughs> right? Uh, we really want people to have a really great experience so much so that they say, hey, you should really work with this, uh, with this team. And we mm -hmm. sort of move up that curve. And I think the key, I, I have one, I think, key gem that I've learned over the years that I keep written down, which is you're not automating expertise when you talk to these people. You're not talking about managing internal knowledge or automating expertise. That's something that we as managers talk about a lot and use those words. Mm -hmm. But actually what I would say when I talk to them is, like, what do you want to accomplish? What gets you excited about your work? What gets you up at, in, in the day? And often what these people in my organization say is, Let, let's get, I, what I want to do is I want to see this change in the world, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I want to see this difference that I am making, or I want to see this X impact, or I want to see X growth in whatever it is. And mm -hmm. we say, well, what if we could, what if we could help you make that impact much bigger? What if we could what if we could enhance that impact for you? Mm -hmm. So that's because so often what we think about when we say automation is we, our brains immediately go to like a robot in a factory taking away yeah. someone's job, yeah. right? Yeah. And actually in reality, especially in my technical world where these really talented people get paid a lot of money, and have a lot of job opportunities. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what we're talking about is they're automating so that they're doing higher level, better, better tasks and making yeah. a X-fold impact. They're increasing yeah. their impact. And so if we approach it from that perspective, which I think is actually the truth and not the robot truth most yeah, of the time, then we actually start to get them really excited about it. And that, because that's what they want to do. That's why they get up in the morning and now you're helping them do what they want to do anyway and doing it much better or, or reaching more people or, or helping them reach their dream. Um, and at the same time, yeah, we're also managing internal, we're actually, we're actually automating, you know, expertise. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But, you know, find, doing that with those people who are the early adopters, getting them really happy and excited and doing that work really well, and then getting them to recommend you, um, I think is really, it's a simple, again, a simple strategy, but also hard and a lot of work. And you really need to de dedicate the time and, and, and focus on that strategy to make it work well. Yeah, makes sense, Graham. And a nice real world answer where 
so very often uh, productivity to improve the effectiveness of of humans with real expertise is is where the big wins are and i think getting honest about how much ai is kind of nowhere on the journey toward general intelligence let's get let's get honest the, the old early i ideas of classic AI have been left well behind, I think. And however clever some machine learning algorithms are, most things just help us to do a particular niche job more effectively and quickly. Um, and let's let's just use that for productivity. That sounds good to me, Gwen. 100%. The, let's talk then, I, I'm conscious, we, when we chatted before this recording, um, we, we've kind of talked about uh, data science hiring. I know you've got some strong views, so I'm keen to, to tap into them. Um, Thinking about hiring and retaining, let's say, particularly data science talent for your team, tell us a bit about how you approach that, how you make sure you get the right people for your team, not just how many, for instance, approach data science talent recruitment. Yeah, and, and I think you saw how I was waving my hands in that uh, in that conversation. <laughs> I always tipped you off to my, uh, my excitement about this topic. Uh, yes, so I feel really strongly about hiring the right folks. And I gave a little bit of preview earlier, which is in my experience of focusing on policy and learning the technology, mm. uh, you know, what we look for most acutely when we're doing interviews and other processes is we really want to see people with that interest in policy and the background in some way that shows that they have a, not just a 30 second focus on it, not just a six month focus on it, but hopefully over years, whether it's in school or in their real world experience, that they are focused on policy and making real world impact. Mm. And at the same time that they, you know, have interest in learning technology, that they are a quick learner, that they, you know, obviously can work well with teams. You know, I think what that 10 years ago would have been a little bit of a pipe dream, but Right now, there's a lot of programs, you know, one of the first ones we were connected with through one of our early data scientists, Alex Engler, who went off to run the um, uh, computational analysis and public policy program at University of Chicago, for example, which was one of the pioneers in this space. They, you know, they have these people who are learning policy and learning some computer science at the same time. Right, <laughs> and there's yeah. a number of these schools now in the um, what they call the PITA network, the New America uh, Public Interest Technology University Network that has uh, over 20 schools that, are, that have these programs in place right now. They're, they're training these, these, these folks to go into these fields and have both of those sets of experiences and often with policy backgrounds in place. And so the, they're out there. And you know, I think what's really important is you see a lot of folks that come with that uh, want to call it sort of tech solutionism um, mentality, mm, right? Mm, yeah, um, me. yeah. <laughs> I have a hammer. Let me go looking around for nails that seem like they're, they're, you know, particularly valuable to solve in the social sector because I want to feel like I'm doing good. Yeah. Right. And what I think that shows is more of an interest in the hammer than the nail. <laughs> right. Mm, mm, and I think mm. what we really need is an understanding that, um, that this problem is so multifaceted <laughs> in yeah. many cases, as we talked about earlier, people are very complicated when you're solving social sector problems. Often technology is just one part of many different parts of expertise you need in this solutioning of whatever we're doing. And, you know, to make sure we're, you know, getting the right people in, and changing the sector, you know, there's not a ton of 
people that are in this sector right now that are really, really high level, great technologists that we would call like, you know, really impactful folks on, you know, at a Microsoft or an Amazon or others that really know their data engineering stuff and have that policy background. And so I'm really sensitive now when we're sort of in the early stages of getting these people that we want to get as many people as possible that are going to be within this sector, staying in this sector, building that capability mm-hmm. and being retained in this sector as opposed to, you know, yeah. saying, oh, let's, let's spend two years here and go off to a tech company. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Graham. I, I hear what you're saying. It's, it's both a way of filtering out the, the combination of knowledge that you need, but but also of motivation and attitude as well. There is that that longevity of interest and motivation of applying the technical skills in that domain. That that makes good sense. I think it's a wise hiring mantra. The I guess the maybe it's not quite shadow side. Glad you like that term. But um, these days, a, a lot of the tech firms, maybe this is true of Amazon and Microsoft, since they've got mentions already, um, they really want to have. Um, ethical and social responsibility case studies to show how kind of down with the kids and caring they are. Um, So I'm imagining you probably get um, calls from them or calls from graduates who just want to come and do a little bit of time at you. So they've got a great CV when they apply for their dream job at Amazon. Do you you run into that? And do you say yes or no? (laughs) I do run into that. Uh, Look, I'm not a... I'm not a like all I'm not corporations are are totally evil or you know and we're the good guys. I think like with anything there's good and bad. The good is that we you know I, I think some of these are really good opportunities for the team to get exposed especially with the big tech companies to what the cutting edge in data science and engineering and technology are. They're really hungry to know what the cutting edge skills are, learn new yeah. things, see how those teams operate, improve our skills and processes. So I think there is definitely a value to that. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, I just to brag a little bit, it also lets them see that they're really good at what they do uh, and that they are good folks. Because sometimes when you go into, when you go look and see what these tech folks are doing, um, uh, there's a couple things at play. One, they, they, they're using many of the same workflows and tools that we use. So people say, huh, well, they're not as different as I thought. I thought they were sort of these mythical beings on another plane that were doing this super advanced under the hood, low level language programming. And really they're also just using Python and a Jupyter notebook. And, you know, indeed, we're all doing the indeed. same thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really valuable. And at the same, also the other thing is that, you know, in, in those tech companies, people are really, really siloed. And so, you know, uh, you may be doing one very specific task as a data scientist of doing, you know, business intelligence platform reporting for, or something like that as an analyst. And you're not touching any of the cloud systems or, you know, any of the um, data analysis, mm-hmm. uh, advanced mm-hmm. data analysis workflows that are more experimental because those are all different people's jobs, <laughs> right? Yeah. And yeah. the people yeah. here may, in my organization, we can't afford to be that specialized. So they do many things and they say, oh, actually I'm doing more, more work than they are <laughs> in that yeah. respect. Yeah. And yeah. I really do have a cross, uh, I, this understanding allows me to do a little bit more. So, you know, I think it's, it's valuable from both ends. Um, you know, on the on, on on the work that they do, I think it's valuable to have someone to help out when we do have shovel ready work um, with some of these projects. You know, it's all there are some times where you're just like, man, I really wish, for example, with property records, I really wish we had a good entity resolution uh, algorithm yeah. <laughs> to yeah. help yeah. better understand who owns each of our neighborhoods. You know, mm-hmm. which is mm-hmm. changing tectonically now as wealth uh, shifts more to the top. You know, but there's other issues that it's much more about solving not just the technical problem, but with 
you know, setting up the problem, understanding it, talking with busy people at nonprofits and policies and community members, framing the problem, uh, understanding how you're going to communicate it, and doing research that understands the, the decade-long history of whatever that topic area is. And, you know, that's, the tech part is only a small part of that work. And often it's much harder to, fr- to get, to do all that work to frame that problem. And by the time you've done that, the people who have done the work at our organizations will actually want to do the analysis. They don't want to hand it off to some, a graduate student or, or someone at one yeah. of these companies. Yeah, sure. And then, you know, that, that story that I just told you is not the story of we added AI and this amazing thing happened and changed the world, which is really what the, a lot of the management at these technology companies want. The corporate mm-hmm. folks there, the folks there that are trying to work the change with you often are very much on your side and want to make that cha- the world a better place. But the people who are their bosses or their bosses' bosses want to tell, have a press release saying, you know, indeed, of course, this great technology did X. <laughs> and often that's not in alignment with solving these complex problems where technology is only a small part of that. And, you know, I think the last thing I'll say on that is that, you know, um, sometimes, as you said earlier, I think, Paul, simple automation <laughs> using mm-hmm. cloud or, or data best practices or data engineering, emerging suites like data quality, like serverless mm-hmm. functions that make things easier, auto scaling, basic tech like that are sometimes the most valuable improvements because they just yeah. are this, these simple new automations that make things easier, but they're really not the sexiest to talk about. In, indeed, indeed. Not so great for the press release. That, that, that makes good sense, Graham. The other thing I noticed about kind of the difference that you've talked about making at Urban is, I guess, from what I've heard, it sounds like your approach to data science was a bit more externally focused first. It was how can you put out more engaging content than than just that the PDFs that nobody reads. Whereas a lot of the case studies you hear about organizations learning about data science is first they do tons of groundwork with finding internal cost savings, productivity gains internally, and eventually they get to the nirvana film of putting out data products and monetizing their data and all this kind of stuff. With hindsight, do you think that was the right decision? Was it important that you were externally focused first? Is it just the nature of the organization or do you think you were onto a trick there? I think I got lucky, but it was the right move. <laughs> Absolutely honest. the right move. Absolutely the right move. It was 100% the move that we should have made in retrospect. Um, you know, at the time, there's two, there's two parts that made it an easy, easy decision at the time, mm. even though I think we lucked into it. One was we were just as a business beginning our digital transformation. So there was just so okay. much that needed to be overhauled that mm. doing that focus internally, we wouldn't have been able to show cost savings because we needed to make service better and quality better. Right. And there was just so right. much to overhaul that, you know, it would have been a good opportunity probably where we could have inserted some of these new practices, but the business was so not digitally fit that I think we were too far away. Right. I, I was talking to our head of, um, of, of BI at the time who was newly hired and, you know, he's like, they're asking for these reports. I don't think they realize they don't have the data, <laughs> you know, and you know, the, building that data infrastructure just wasn't there yet. And it was years away. So I think that was the right move from that perspective. But you know, as I was saying, aligning with those top line values, aligning with the board, with our president, with the researchers who are fundraising, one of the things that allowed us to do and showing that value and sort of snowballing, right? One of the things that allowed us to do was to show that we were, um, we were aligned with the organization and to remove barriers for getting us approved to grow and actually show more and more of what we could do um, and become a bigger team and have much more impact throughout urban in a way that I don't think we could have done nearly as fast if we were instead working within an internal budgeting process to say, we should actually get another FTE. We should get another person on board because, yeah. uh, but, but there, and then the, the head of finance would say, 
oh, well, but HR also needs somebody and, you know, the contracts office also needs somebody. So, you know, maybe next year, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Or, or, yeah, you can get this one person, but, you know, that's it, that's it right? Not, not two or three. Uh, and so, you know, I think what, what, what the aligning with the fundraisers, with the researchers who are doing the fundraising, aligning with the board, who were, were approving those and showing that we were really valuable to them, we just became a part of their fundraising plans. And it wasn't something that was subject to that internal decision-making process. It was mm. subject now to our external funders mm. and our mm. board who had much more um, flexibility to say yes, and no one could say no after that, right? And so we were able to grow and, and show that work through something that was, uh, the way I thought about it is a funding, finding a funding mechanism in which you're growing the pie and not competing, yeah. right? To find yeah. that those resources to be able, right? Like it's one thing if, you know, you can get everyone on board in the operations department and, and say, yes, technology should hire someone. That happens, but very often they'll also say, yes, and we should all hire these other people. <laughs> you're back in boat in square one where you're competing against each other. But it's another thing to say, hey, there's this really valuable thing. We can make this project much better. We can make this work you're doing much easier. And then it's a natural fit to say, okay, external funder, now we're getting more money for urban mm-hmm. as a whole. So data science can't be bad. It's great because it's, it's it contributing to our bottom line, yeah, right? And I yeah, think yeah. I think that's that's a pretty obvious point, but uh, it, it was in retrospect, probably the thing that has allowed us to grow really fast and make a bigger impact. Great, great, very honest, but I can see why that worked. So I'm glad it, it did work for you, Graham. And, and who knew that an interview with someone who pioneered data visualization in their organization would talk positively about growing the pie? Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> as long as it's not 3D. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And only halves or quarters. Anyway, I won't go there. The, uh, the, a couple of questions just, just to close, Graham. Um, they've all asked every data leader because they, they always seem to be quite useful to our, to our audience. Uh, first off is to think about those on uh, listening to, I was going to say on this call, but those listening to this podcast who are earlier in their data careers. Um, Given what you've learned now down the road a bit, what experience would you suggest? What skills would you suggest them gaining given what you've seen is actually needed for them later in their careers? Yeah, I think this is really interesting. And I I think there's a number of different pieces of advice based on where people are going. And when I meet with people one-on-one for informational interviews, I always ask them, what do you want to do? Where's your path? Uh, what's your path? And where are you going to, uh, what's, what's your ultimate vision for how you want to see your career? And then sort of tailor this advice. So given that, I'm going to give some broad scattershot advice that may or may not work for everyone. But I will say for those earlier in their data careers, there is a tremendous amount of really interesting work in the data engineering space right now. And Mm. it's whether you call it data engineering or data ops, those are the terms Mm. I would use. Um, I think cloud technology um, and I would say data quality and data quality suites um, and data ops are sort of the things that I would focus most of my attention on right now. It's where I think we're now in this part, in this phase where data science as, as, is still growing because many organizations want data scientists, but what's growing much more rapidly is this data engineering. Like, how do we take the data from these different systems, put them together into one dashboard, one data set? And now in the last year or two, how do we use these operational mechanics that we borrow from software engineering, from DevOps to make that process so that we have no, and you know, I forget who coined this term, no data downtime, no time where not only is your data not available, but your data maybe is available, but is 
crappy. It's not good quality, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. And I think we're, uh, organizations care a lot about that now. And to the extent that you can invest in those tools and, and, and capabilities, I think that would be a really valuable place to go. That makes good sense. Did you have anywhere else? You, you, you were giving a multifaceted answer. Is, is that for everybody, wherever they want to go, you'd say that's the place to focus right now? <laughs> no, no, there's so many different ways to go. <laughs> I, you know, obviously learning an open source language is there, you know, an R, a Python, probably Python's a little bit more value than R, but, you know, mm-hmm. I think they're both incredibly valuable in, in this space right now. Um, I would say a better understanding the if you're going into a specific business area versus you want to be a data generalist, uh, as I said, obviously understanding the, the area in which you want to be focused, right? So whatever that business area is, if it's, you know, you're going to the criminal justice space, you're going into, um, you know, the advertising space, you're going into in our the housing space, just understanding that um, and, you know, volunteering for an organization or interning for an organization yes. that yeah. is doing that work just to show you're really interested and learning the technology at school or taking some classes at school that are in both of those different fields, I think is really valuable because you'll come in with an expertise. From my experience, when I look at resumes, you know, 90% of the people are generalist tech people. So if you have even a year of that specialized experience, you're already better than 90% of the pool. Uh, and so having some of that, you know, cross-disciplinary experience is super valuable. Um, and, and, and I think, you know, making sure that you, uh, in, in terms of skill building, one of the things that uh, I think is left out, just reach out to people. <laughs> uh, yeah. Often people think you're not yeah. going to respond, but when you're in school, alumni will almost always respond. Uh, yeah who are in the field, especially if you're very nice to them and say, oh, I really admire you. Can you talk about your experience, you know, and then ask them to recommend two more people. That's a skill, you know, being able to network and do some informational interviewing to better understand the space and whether it fits with what you're looking to do. So anyway, I'll stop there, but there's a lot of advice I have for folks that I'm happy to chat about offline. That's good advice and Gwen sounds very available, everybody. So so feel free to network with him. Last question I've got for Vilita, and thank you, Graham. This has this been a great conversation. Can you give us something, an example of something you've changed your mind on in the last few years? I, I ask this of all leaders just to encourage everyone listening to the podcast that even successful leaders some way down the road on their data careers, we're, we're not finished articles. We're still learning and changing as the, as the evidence changes and as we learn things. So what's something you've changed your mind on in the last few years, Graham? Oh gosh, a lot of things. <laughs> this is a this is a tough question to think about, Paul. And I, I really, you know, I really appreciate that you asked this because often we don't reflect on our failures uh, as well as mm. our successes. Mm. Mm. And you know, so I I was totally and completely wrong about the importance of data science and data engineering. Okay. <laughs> and honest I nice. I honestly, yeah. So you know, I came in and I pitched. I told you I pitched data science. And I still think data science is really valuable because data science doesn't have a clear definition, <laughs> right? Yeah. So if I define yeah. it however I want, of course it's very valuable because uh, <laughs> it fits with whatever is valuable in the day. Um, but, but, you know, I had sort of put as, I, I had seen like the flexibility of these tools in the cloud. I had seen the ability of myself to be able to spin up a large you know, EC2 instance, a large cloud instance and do research work 10 times faster than one of my colleagues. And be able to, you know, take advantage of these big data systems or other, um, you know, pieces of technology that we could use to vastly expand our research, do things we could never do before. Um, And so, you know, I always thought, oh, you know, that's data science. But a lot of people, what they would say is, 
actually what you're doing is data engineering. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, I wish, you know, going back in time that I could have thought about that more as a coherent set of things that, you know, the data pipeline, the data quality, the data systems as more of this expertise in and of itself, very similar to software engineering and DevOps back mm-hmm. then. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that would have strengthened our data systems and been closer to the automation that we needed. I had to learn through trial and error that, yeah. you know, I, what I say to everyone now, we always focus on AI and ML. And in fact, that's probably, I would say 5% of my team's work, <laughs> yeah. right? Data analysis, another chunk, and then data engineering is another big chunk. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I was focusing much more on that very small chunk initially and had to learn through tough experience that that was the wrong way to go. <laughs> and that really that, that simple automation, the, the use of these new systems and tools and, and pipelines was where a lot of the value is driven. And I, uh, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, <laughs> but yeah. I wish that I, uh, I wish I had seen more of that. And I've definitely changed my mind since then. Great. Thank you. But very honest answer, a very useful one, Graham. I, I've heard in chats of many data leaders, similar, um, sentiments expressed i think it's uh, historically been the less glamorous less sexy end of the, the data spectrum should we say but definitely coming into its own and definitely almost the majority of organizations i'd say seeing that they need to focus more on data ops and data engineering so sound advice indeed for people building those foundations that's great thanks for that great many thanks for your time today graham it's been a pleasure to chat with you thank you paul for having me on i appreciate it You're very welcome. And thank you everybody for listening. I hope you found that helpful and continue to listen to the Customer Insight Leader podcast. More great interviews coming up. And each week I've also got fresh content on the blog, customerinsightleader, or one word, .com. So you might want to check that out too. Before then, thanks everyone for your time. Have a great week. Stay safe, stay safe even. Um, And perhaps think about how can you do some of what Graham's talked about in terms of building that domain knowledge, really understanding your organization and thinking about the data ops side as well. Thoughts for this week, perhaps. Bye for now.